0: Morning diners and travelers, you're listening to On the Menu with Ian and Peter Haig, And today we're bringing you a miscellany of interviews with interesting people about interesting subjects. Uh, first up, um, all of you who think that you finally figured out your diet, uh, nutrition, uh, how to maintain your weight, uh, what to eat—well, here's here's a new one at you. It's called When to Eat What. And the author is going to be talking to us about that, um, Michael Krupain. He's the co-author with the Dr. Michael Royson. um, And uh, this is big-time stuff uh, related to Dr. Oz and all kinds of other things. And I think it will get you thinking. I'm always anxious to learn something new. And uh, today we're going to be talking to Dr. Michael Krupain. Uh, who is going to uh, talk to us about not just nutrition, but or not just what to eat or how much? He's going to talk to us about his new book called "What to Eat When." Um, now, Michael, um, now that's
1: W H E N, just like, yes. just like you thought, not W E N.
0: Yeah, W H E N. Michael, a lot of of this is um, professional stuff. So why don't you just give us a brief rundown on your background and, and how you're involved with this and Dr. Oz and the show and the whole thing.
2: Sure. Well, thanks
3: for, uh, for having me. It's, uh, I'm uh, trained in preventive medicine, right. which is um, a medical specialty, and it's diff- it can be different things, but the way I practice preventive medicine is it's a public health specialty, so I don't necessarily see patients, but I treat populations. So I'm the medical director at the Dr. Oz Show, and no better place in my mind to treat populations than in the media, where the media can help change culture, and the Dr. Oz Show is where so many people come to get their health information.
0: It's so true. That's I, it's a whole new ball game, isn't it?
3: Yeah. So that's, that's where I am now. Before here, I actually worked at Consumer Reports, the magazine, mm-hmm. and I helped run the food safety program there. And uh, before that, I was doing my residency at Johns Hopkins. And once upon a time, I thought I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And I did a couple of years of residency in that before I kind of came to my senses and realized that I was more interested in, in preventive medicine and public health.
0: My, I was raised on, my mother had a subscription for as long back as I can remember to Prevention Magazine. You ever hear of that one?
3: Yeah, I've heard of Prevention, sure.
0: <laughs> I don't
1: know if it's he still probably, alive. You probably wrote for them. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's still around.
1: I, I always think the, the classic. For illustrating what is preventive medicine, is the famous Doctor Snow, who tracked down the sources of cholera in London in the 19th century. What was that? Yeah,
3: he changed the pump handle. He, he, cha- he cha- realized. Well, he that, took uh, he took
1: were- he took the pump handles off. The yeah, offending the offending right. things, so that people wouldn't wouldn't be tempted to use them anymore. What kind of pump? Water pump on the,
3: like the well, the water wells.
1: He, he actually he actually mapped all the water wells in his area of london and then, and then and then compared that to the number of people who got cholera. I think it was cholera mm-hmm. and, and and he discovered which ones were the offending ones and then his his solution was to take the handles off the pumps so people couldn 't <laughs> use them anymore yeah that right. was
3: that was one of the sort of the beginnings of public health and and where we we realized that you know we could really improve lives by by having cleaner water and and uh, infrastructure. That's how actually most of our advances in health and extending l- human uh, life expectancy is from those basic sanitation measures that we've taken.
1: There's a, there's a there's a famous public house in in the area of London where he practiced. Maybe you have maybe you'll have a public house named after you somewhere where <laughs> you practice.
3: Yeah, that'd be cool. I'd like to visit that.
0: Well, now. Um, I guess we're all. This is the time of the year, January. Everybody's concerned because they've overindulged over the holidays. Everybody's concerned. I was explaining to Peter that it's a dry month. People give up booze. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's uh, everybody wants to lose weight. Um, you really think that a lot of us, based our attitudes, are based on myths, right?
3: Uh, on our on what we think we should be eating. Yes. Um I think there's a lot of misinformation and confusion in the world. Uh-huh. I think there's a lot of uh diet plans out there that are fads and I think a lot of people think that it's it's really hard to actually lose weight and it is it is hard but there's ways it's I think part of that is because of the way we approach it. Yeah. I think people think that they have to suffer and deprive themselves and and make uh, eating healthy like, really complicated when it doesn't have to be.
0: Well no you introduce this this whole idea of the um, uh, circadian uh, clock, right?
3: Mm-hmm. That's that's a big part of our of our book, and so the book is really divided. What to eat when is divided into two halves. I'd say the first half is how to eat with your circadian rhythm, so how to eat within a given day, and then the second half is how to eat in lots of different scenarios. Everything right. from uh, you know going on a job interview to preventing cancer. Um, so yeah, the The basic premise of eating with your circadian rhythm is that your circadian rhythm is your body's clock, and its main function is to get your body ready to do the right thing at the right time. So if you think about it, you can't just react instantly to something. You sort of have to rev up and get the machinery ready to do certain things. So we often think about our circadian rhythm for sleep, and we know about it. Like For jet lag, if we go across multiple time zones, we don't feel well
0: yeah that's but, for sure we do that a lot, and it's really, it's awful, except yeah. we we found that the best thing to do is just hit the ground running do just get on whatever track everybody else is on wherever you're landing
3: so but, what when it when it comes to your circadian rhythm does more than just sort of regulate your sleep, it, it regulates everything in your body and and throughout your body, you actually have different clocks, the main ones in the brain, and your metabolism actually changes throughout the day and so it makes it makes things that you eat in the morning are actually, your body handles them differently than things you eat in the evening because it all has to do with evolution we evolved to rely on the sun and now nowadays we don't need it um, but our, 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 the sun sets our circadian rhythm and we're expected to eat or our body expects us to eat, it prepares us to eat while the sun is shining during the day and to not eat at night when it's dark yeah, well, and so, it's not
0: going to like Pittsburgh very much I'll tell you <laughs>
3: <laughs> say that again.
0: I mean, our our my circadian uh, rhythm really probably doesn't like Pittsburgh very much. It's very gray.
1: <laughs> but but it, it, but it would be it would be true to say it's not it's not a half truth. It's a full truth that breakfast is the most important meal of the day.
3: I'd say I like to say that either breakfast or lunch is the most important meal of the day. So uh, definitely, our recommendation is that you eat more early because then you're eating in line with what your body is expecting. Uh, if it can be breakfast, that's great. um, If you're sort of the kind of person who can't eat breakfast no matter what, then as long as you're eating most of your calories before 2 o'clock, that's probably the best case scenario. So we advise a big breakfast and lunch and a small dinner. There's a really interesting study. There's two really interesting studies in humans, and both of them are looking at people who were on a diet. And one of them put people on sort of a low-calorie diet, and they gave them them the food. So they were getting about 1,400 calories a day, Mm -hmm. and they they split the people into two groups. Both groups got 500 of, of those calories at lunch, and one group got 700 at breakfast and 200 at dinner, and the other group got the opposite, 200 at breakfast and 700 at dinner. And they found that even though everybody ate the exact same number of calories, the people who ate the 700 calories at the breakfast period lost a lot more weight than the people who ate it in the dinner period. And there's another study, very similar, where they looked at people in Spain. And Spain, as you guys know... Yeah, I was just going to their-
0: say, what about the cradle of civilization and what about Spain? Go ahead, yes. tell us about that.
3: So so Spain, in, in a lot of European countries, lunch is the biggest meal. They might yes. eat late, but their late meal is going to be a lot smaller than the lunch meal. So <laughs> they, looked at pe- they put people on a diet in Spain and... They them, ended up grouping them into two groups based on sort of how they ended up naturally falling into these patterns of the way they ate. They all ate about the same food, but they ate it at different times. So some people had an early lunch and some people had a late lunch. So late lunch being after 3 o'clock and early lunch being before 3 o'clock. And people who ate the early lunch, again, even though they ate the same types of food and about the same exact calories, as the people who ate the late lunch, the early lunch eaters lost 25% more weight than the late lunch eaters.
1: In other words, although the Spaniards are smart for eating a big lunch, start, starting dinner at 10 o'clock in the evening is a bad idea.
3: <laughs> starting dinner at 10 o'clock well, in the 11, evening is not the best idea.
1: Yeah. But that's, that's what they do.
3: Yes, but but they're getting the majority of their calories much earlier. Oh, I so see. That, okay. So they're being protected in that way. So even though they're eating late, which we don't think is the best idea, they're get, they're getting probably 75% of their calories before 3 o'clock
0: in the most part. Yeah, see, we, what we do in Spain, just to, I mean, just, we cope. Um, we eat uh, breakfast, and we eat a late, large lunch, like around 1.32, mm-hmm. and then we skip dinner.
3: So you guys basically. are you guys are perfect.
1: <laughs> there's another there's another element of it, which is we're still stuffed from lunch because <laughs> lunch starts at two o'clock and then and for three hours and, and can be known to stop at five thirty in the evening.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, there, I always have arguments with my um, trainer about this. I mean, her theory is a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. And it's that in and out thing. If you expend um, more calories than you take in, you lose weight. Mm -hmm. And I'm a firm believer in what you're talking about. And people don't seem to talk much about it, is this, um, uh, the gut stuff, you know, the bio, whatever it's called.
3: Oh, the microbiome,
0: microbiome, yes. Which yeah. is, I mean, I think that explains so much more than calories in and out, and so much more than sheer metabolism.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, know? the microbiome's pretty yeah. interesting. But I, I'll tell you, your your trainer is is right, but not totally right, mm-hmm. because it is about about calories and calories in and calories out. But what I'm saying is that when you eat those calories, makes the difference. Uh-huh. So, so if eating a calorie in the morning doesn't actually count as much as eating a calorie at night, so you could eat the same number, but you're not really, your body is not getting the same number, because calories are sort of an artificial uh, construct, right, where they're actually measured traditionally, you know, like in a bomb calorimeter, you throw something into a, into um, a calorimeter and burn it up, because a calorie is a measure of energy, of heat. Right. So, that's an artificial lab number, but what actually happens in your body is different, it's. Every once in a while, the New York Times runs an article about this where they say, you know, if you've got 100 calories of nuts, it turns out when you eat them, it's not actually 100 calories of nuts because your body doesn't actually absorb all 100 calories because of some of it's fiber and it's all different things. But that's different than if you burned it up, you know, with a flame. When Michael, to See, the- that's
1: good. Yeah. Good man. Thank you.
0: That's a good explanation, Michael, of, of that because um, I, I I do think there's a difference in terms of what you eat for your calories. Yeah.
3: Yeah, so if you're eating if you're eating potato chips or processed foods, those are sort of highly digestible foods. So if it says on the package it's got 250 calories, you're going to get all 250 calories. I see. But if you're eating um, 250 calories of broccoli, that's, your body's not going to turn that into 250 calories the same way it would as if it was potato chips.
0: Yeah, well, now, this <laughs> book is packed with information. You also have a, a program that you could um, ease into correcting your... Uh, your when, um, on the 31... There's a 30-day or 31-day? 31-day. 31-day regime. And then you have also the different scenarios of, like, if you're going on a first date, what do you eat? Which I'm, yeah. I'm a little far away from that one. Um, but uh, give us, like... We'll never get to all this stuff. Give us, like, your Ten Commandments.
3: Well, the, I mean, the main rules or I don't like to call them rules, but sort of the principles of the book are that you should eat with the sun. So then you're eating uh, when the sun's shining and hopefully not eating when it's not, and that you should eat more early and less later. Right. So as we've been talking about, make breakfast and lunch your biggest meals of the day. And in order to do that, you have to go with our third principle, which is don't stereotype food, or in the sort of more fun way to say it, is eat your dinner for breakfast. So,
0: I do that too. <laughs> yeah, I'm not well, a good person. <laughs>
3: Yeah, you guys are doing very well. So you know, but you you you've done lots of traveling. So you know that in other countries that we they don't necessarily look at food the same way we do. And here we think you know breakfast has to be an egg or a bowl of cereal or or a muffin. But in other countries they're okay eating a piece of fish for breakfast or something completely different. So yep. I love I love to eat pasta for breakfast.
0: Oh yeah. Or leftover pizza—that's another good thing.
3: Well, leftover pizza is a very college food.
1: <laughs>
3: but um, uh,
1: Ann likes and likes lentils and what's the other, what's the other thing I put in your mixture? Quinoa. Quinoa. She it, likes she likes those for breakfast. But I make yeah. bowls.
0: I, this morning. What did I have? I had um, the the lentil mixture with the quinoa that he makes for me, and then I had um, a, some. Ch- Cut up tomato from the leftover salad, from leftover from last night, uh, leftover cooked mushrooms, and some um, little bits. So this one's bad because it's red meat because you, you don't want to eat it. But it's not a bunch of red meat. And usually it's something like chicken or, or something like that. Um, and, and that's a bowl. And you eat that for breakfast.
3: Yeah, that sounds great.
0: Yeah, I don't like cereal. I hate cereal.
3: Yeah, I never, I've never really liked breakfast foods. My like, Mike Roizen, who I wrote the book with, he likes to eat salmon burgers for breakfast.
0: You know, that would be fine. Yeah, I like the Japanese stuff, pickles and soup.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, soup is another one of my favorite breakfasts in the winter.
0: Uh-huh. Me <laughs> Yeah. So what? What else do you think will happen when people get a hold of this book? You you have um, you have advisories on. Specific foods to avoid or to limit.
3: Yeah, so the the when you eat is obvious, is important. That's the big concept we've been talking about. But what you eat also also matters. And we think that this book isn't really meant to be a sort of a diet book or a weight loss book. It's a book about helping you maximize your health. Mm-hmm. So people who want to lose weight, they're going to lose weight. It's sort of a we say it's a side effect of eating this way. So one, eating in a healthy way is what we recommend. And that's eating lots of fruits and vegetables, so we say you should eat as many uh, vegetables as possible. I'd say you could probably eat as many fruit as possible. I think it's hard to overeat fruit if you're eating whole fruit. Eating whole grains is great. Eating healthy fats like olive oil and avocados are excellent choices, or uh, people aren't eating enough nuts and seeds. So um, Mike Royzen again, is a huge, huge fan of walnuts. He's gotten me really into walnuts, so now I throw them on everything,
0: yeah, I get um, Peter fruit, fresh fruit, and for breakfast, I've done it for forty some years now and mm-hmm. uh, and 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 then I'll top it with nuts. I have nuts in the freezer at all times, like walnuts or
1: pick well, well, you also get you also get maximum brownie points for freezing cherries and blueberries. Oh yeah, and uh, what are they? ground cherries? and yeah you know, Asian pears off our Asian pear tree. So so, uh, so, 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 I get, so I get a pretty healthy diet and and then gets the credit for for inventing it.
3: that's yeah. pretty good, yeah, you guys are way ahead of the curve here, well, yeah I know well, we, what we,
1: people. we read your we read your book remember you, <laughs> remember you, you, you sent us a preview copy, so we had a chance to, <laughs> so we had a chance to know what the right things were to say
0: <laughs> so um what is there something really, really important that we haven't talked about that you'd like to say?
3: I think the other thing we we didn't get into yet was um, the idea of when you're eating with the sun, you're going to have a period of not eating, right? So that's a a fast, uh, you could say. Oh, that's
0: the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, because I see people at the gym do this all the time, this alternating days of fasting.
3: Yeah, there's all kinds of ways of what's called intermittent fasting. Some people do alternate day fasting, so one day they'll eat normally and the next day they'll eat nothing or very little. Um, some people might go for do that two days a week some people might do it every other day but what we're what we talk about in the book is something that's called time restricted eating or time restricted feeding if you were studying an animal and that's when you uh, limit the window that you eat in so the typical american is eating over 14 or 15 hours a day basically from the time they wake up till the time they go to bed Um, when you eat with the sun that Window is going to be limited to at least 12 hours typically, right? The sun is up half the day, let's say, in, on average. Uh, and if you can, it's better to make that window that you're eating even smaller and the window that you're fasting even larger. So if you cannot eat for, say, 14 hours a day or 16 hours a day, then you're going to get sort of more of those benefits of, of fasting. And some of those things that seem to people seem to have more energy, you're going to bur- start getting into burning fat. And what's really cool. As you think about it, think about um, evolution and history. Once upon a time, we didn't have access to food 24 hours a day, a because the sun wasn't shining, and b because we didn't have refrigerators and stores and right. food everywhere we looked. And we actually had to evolve to survive when we didn't eat every day, right? So yes. maybe maybe we had to go a day or two without eating, and we had to be better, right? We had to be better when we were hungry. So our body, because otherwise we would die. So our body had to develop mechanisms to protect itself when we weren't eating all the time, and so it looks like that when you get into some intermittent fasting, you activate stem cells, you decrease inflammation, you you get your body into a more fit form um, that's protective.
1: Now, one of the things that struck me was the was the way that you craft your when, if you like, diet or approach to food to events in your life, like when you're going to be in a meeting or when you're going to be in an office party or, or when you're going to be interviewing for another job. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you have advice on how to prepare in those environments too.
3: Yeah, for there's, a, there's about 30 different scenarios in the book where we uh, make suggestions about what, what you should eat when you encounter them. So everything that you talked about, uh, a popular one is when you're stressed or, or hangry, when you get angry because you're hungry. Um, And one of the things we recommend for that is eating uh, roasted chickpeas because they're they're a uh, crunchy snack that's easy to make that's filled with fiber and protein. So it'll be sort of soothing because of the crunch and filling because of the fiber and protein.
0: That's, yeah, I love chickpeas. (laughs) Um, I had one last question to ask you is, um, what do you think about these people who've, um, apparently, living longer because they 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 stop just at that point before they're like anorexic. They they just the lowest possible number of calories consumed before they get uh, into the anorexia gen- uh, zone.
2: Yeah. So
3: there's 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 studies in animals where when they calorie restrict them severely, they can live longer. Yes. And I think that's where the idea of fasting um, for health comes from, and that's where intermittent fasting comes from, because it's really, really, really hard to, to live in sort of that very calorie-deprived state and can be dangerous. So I think, um, you know, if that's something you want to do in, in your life, I'm not going to say you shouldn't, but I think that for most people that's impossible to do, and it doesn't sound very enjoyable. No, I thought really, it was
0: weird. Yeah.
3: Thing. It's really important to to me and to uh, to Mike Royce and to both of us when we are writing this book that that people do something that's ha- possible, right, and that you eat food that you love because we both love food. Like, cooking is my passion. Okay. Um, so I think I wouldn't want to do that. If that's something people want to do, they can try it. But um, – I, it's not. It doesn't sound like
4: fun.
1: No, it doesn't sound like fun to me. <laughs> well, was, anyhow. So, so, when you buy this book? Yes, when. Not, you buy this not book. if you buy this book. Uh, you'll, you'll be on the road to success already because there's so much good advice packed into these covers.
0: Yeah. And, and Thank it's, you. it's a, a nice colorful platter on the cover and, uh, and the book's yellow which is, um, you don't like egg yolks that much, but that's the color of it. <laughs> and again, so it's, it's Michael Croupane, and it's called What to Eat When. So your New Year's resolution, get, get set with get your the, yeah, biological <laughs> clock here.
1: <laughs> First of all, get the book.
0: Yes. Michael, thank you so much for talking to us.
3: Thank you. It's been really fun. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net
0: Welcome back. And next stop, we're going to get your gastric juices going. No matter what time you read this book, um, it's by Chef Todd Richards, who is the uh, chef owner of Richards in uh, in uh, Atlanta. Um, he he blends all kinds of influences and adds new twists and interests to Southern cooking, and you're going to find it really.
1: But but you'll get the real secret when I tell you what the title is, because the title is Soul. Soul. (laughs) And and it took a couple of decades of soul to create this book. Yes. So, so Todd, we we knew you had it in you. Thank you so much for joining us on the program, and here you are. Great. Todd
0: Richards, your book, Soul is sort of what we need to have happen right now, some sort of an explanation of, of terms that people just throw around without understanding. And you make an attempt to explain what it is, what soul food is, what soul is. And your subtitle is A Chef's Culinary Evolution in 150 Recipes. And by that, it means what?
2: Uh, The the subtitle really speaks to uh, going from uh, traditional recipes into the modern context of what they are and hopefully give the readers a glimpse to what's going to happen in the future of of soul food in particular and food in general.
0: Okay. Um, You have the book organized according to ingredients. And I read someplace uh, on your back cover, I think, about um, how you have to admire somebody who devotes an entire chapter to (laughs) Collins.
2: Right.
4: I I agree. (laughs)
2: Right.
1: Yeah, Cale is asking for... Same amount of time.
2: Yeah, right now. Right now you know, You know, kale used to be relegated into uh, the food uh, cases, uh, meat cases, and in, in, in butcher shops. You know, that's where all the uh, meat we used to sit on was just trays and trays of kale. And I was so happy to see it uh, bath in its own glory uh, of a delicious vegetable that was quite misunderstood for a long period of time.
0: Um, yeah, well, you you take it a step further,
2: though. I mean, this is a star. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, 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 well collards, you know, you can't talk about soul food in general without talking about collard greens. Yeah. Uh, uh, collard greens is one of those things. But the reason I really wanted to start with collard greens was to talk about the technique and then to also tell people that the technique that when the fat solidifies on top of the collard greens, which are protecting all the pot liquor and all that down below, that that's the same kind of technique you see in French food when you look exactly. at duck confit. Yeah, you know, so so we're more we're more you know similar than we are different, especially if we use food as a lens uh, to justify us coming together.
0: Yeah, no, that's one of your themes is uh, food brings people together. Um, you have your own. Um, is, uh, you call it a restaurant. I'm sorry? Your your restaurant. It's oh, yes, Richard's yeah, Southern Fried. Richard, Richard, Richard
2: Southern Fried, yes.
0: And and it's in the um Atlanta's Crog
2: Street Market? That is correct. So Crog Street is uh, basically a food hall that has three anchoring uh sit down restaurants and then there's eight of us or nine of us that share, you know, the common space of Crog Street Market.
0: Great. That's a good trend, I think, actually. <laughs> um, the you you
2: Grew up in Chicago. Yeah, I grew up in, in Chicago. Grew up on the south side of Chicago. Uh, left and was on the north side of Chicago. But a lot of times during the summer, uh, we would spend a lot of times in, in you know in the south and uh, just that travel down the highways, just stopping at road stop uh, places. You know, getting some fresh peaches where you had to sit there and and do the peach stand so the so the juice doesn't drip all over your shirt. Uh, <laughs> Uh, understanding, you know, preserves come, you know, how preserves are made. Uh, stopping by uh, honey places and getting jar honey to take back with you—that's uh, what I did as a kid. My, now, my mom, she would stop by places and bring some moonshine back. Um, that was that was that was her 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 part of that roadside stand as well. So,
0: yeah. Well, you know, you've you've cooked a whole bunch of different cuisines, um, and you you've worked in so many different places. You you really earned your stripes in the the chefing business, haven't
2: you? Yeah, that, that is correct. Uh, you know, it really started when I was a kid, though. Every birthday, holiday, Christmas was always at our house. And uh, they got to a point that, you know, sometimes it would be 75, 80 people coming over our house. Oh, good, good. So be, you know, for a birthday party. And if you look in the book, uh, there's a p- uh, uh, picture in there of me holding a cake. And with that cake, uh, it not only my birthday, because it was my birthday party, but all my cousins and aunts and uncles who had birthdays at that same time. My great-grandparents' 61st anniversary was at that time. And that's just how we celebrate it. it was never uh, you just, you know, come together in a small gathering. And the only requirement we have is that if you're going to bring something that had to be delicious, if, if you couldn't do that, bring something to drink, but most importantly, come with kind, love, and spirit. And that's kind of the way I still approach food uh, to this day.
0: Well, You, you also um, are really famous for not wasting anything. You're a great advocate for sustainability and no food waste.
2: I, I don't like food waste, but you could have so much fun with doing things uh, there was a dish I did in the oak room in Louisville, Kentucky. It was an asparagus dish. And, you know, the, the bottom part of the stem could be really woody. Most times you would just discard it. So we made uh, a puree with it, and then we made a ravioli with it. So instead of just throwing away this part that everyone would just discard and um, I actually, you know, made a ravioli with it. And the same way my dad taught me, he wouldn't throw, I mean, no one ever thinks about pickling collard green stems, but my dad would refuse to throw that part away. So and that's where that
0: came from, the pickle. That's
2: exactly, exactly where it came from. We, we, he wouldn't throw it away. So he would chop them, uh, uh, put them in vinegar and water, uh, or sometimes he would make cucumber tomato salad, and that liquid that was left over, he would pull, uh, pour over the collard green stems and just sit it in the windowsill uh or the kitchen, and, you know, 10 days later, we got collard green pickles.
0: Now, some of these these recipes are very complicated. I mean, I imagine you've got to get your pantry straightened out
2: pretty fast, right? Well, uh, you know, I believe some of them are, are, are complicated in the sense that they may not be familiar ingredients, but really the simplicity of cooking with them is is how you just approach the stove. And, you know, I tell people that, you know, I grew up in, in a household where, where my dad did most of the cooking in the summer my mom did a lot of cooking in the wintertime. And, and and if you teach the kids, you know, at a beginning or early age how to approach the stove, then these recipes are not very, very complicated. And if my dad can do them uh, or my mom can do them, which were the basis of a lot of these recipes, then I think the average person should be able to to do them as well.
0: But you got to have things ready. I mean, there are a lot of things that you have uh, in stock. I mean, I'm trying to remember what it might be. Uh, you well, have, in the I, basics, you have a lot of things you have to get together.
2: I, I, I do. I will say that you, do, you should have, you know, a good amount of spices. I, tell, I encourage people when they go to the store, do not buy the big, you know, 12, 14-ounce thing of spices get the 2- or 3-ounce one because they stay fresher longer, I, I encourage that. If you don't have time to make, make stock, free. there's a, a great amount of commercial stocks out there that are very, very good and, and full of flavor and fortified. So, I, you know, I, I, there's ways to, to modernize a lot of this. But I encourage people to, you know, again just start with your spices. Spices are the most important in really understanding. Look, if you have a, a, a place that you can get really great stock from, then, by all means, get it from there.
0: Now, you have some rather unusual things. I mean, are these your concoctions like okra seed porridge with pork chow and pan roasted okra?
2: Yes. Well, uh, I wanted to, again. You know, back to the subtitle of the evolution. I wanted to make sure that that that, that we were um, we were we were doing so. And understand that okra, it, it, you know, claim the same as in gumbo. Uh-huh. And but, but what do you do when okra, uh, you know, bolts as it always does during the late summer? And you have you can't eat the the outside of okra, but you have all these beautiful seeds on the inside. I see. So, I
0: didn't know that. I mean, I've never grown
2: okra. Yeah. So the, especially, um, I mean, I grew, we grow a lot of okra on, on our on our back deck, and we had that happened that we went on uh, a trip came back and the okra bolted and so the outside was you know really woody but we had all these beautiful tasty seeds inside so instead of just you know, discarding the, the the whole okra uh, pot we just took the seeds out and made porridge out of it if you think about the way okra thickens uh, gumbo where the name comes from then making a porridge with it is kind of that same kind of technique that will go along with it
0: but listen, you won my heart. is the first cookbook I ever picked up that had chicken gizzards in it. <laughs> no, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh,
2: man. I mean, I mean, people. I mean, the, the gizzards are some. Man, I I usually braise them; they get nice and tender. I think, I think they are probably one of the most flavorful parts uh, of the chicken, and they get just discarded. You know, they just get get tossed to the side. And it's it's and, and when you have a, a really good gizzard, I mean, a simple bowl of rice with salt and pepper. A little bit of that panju, nah. That's just some good basic eating right there. Yep. Yeah.
1: Well, the the problem is where where can you buy a quantity of chicken gizzards? I mean, I can't even them.
2: You know, only well, po- well, most places sell them in combination now. They usually sell them with a pack of hearts and gizzards, which you can approach the same way. Yeah, I oh, like, sure I sure, like sure. that. Yeah. Um, but,
0: I mean, I used to get them in Philadelphia at the um, Reading Terminal Market,
2: and
0: mm. I, there's no place in Pittsburgh that I can get gizzards
1: from now.
2: Well, it's, it, it, it's funny too because they're really inexpensive, but they have the most flavor. And I'm glad to see them staying inexpensive. Unlike oxtails, they're also in the book that went from 99 cents a pound to 5.99 a pound. You can almost buy flat iron steak for the same price as you can oxtails.
0: Well, you know, some of these things, I really wish I could just reach out and eat them right now. <laughs> <laughs> the bacon, collard, and fried egg sandwich has to be divine.
2: It is. I, my uh, my wife was having a meeting uh, in her office, and we were doing some uh, some uh, pictures for a magazine, and they asked me to make that one. And I had extra, and every I took them all downstairs to them, and the whole office was quiet. You know, that's a, that's a that telltale sign of something that's delicious. That you know, when the office is quiet, people stop talking; they're just consuming really great food. That's one of my. Favorite recipes in the book as well. I I love it, absolutely love it.
0: Um, Now, now you have all these individual, okay, we said everything's organized by ingredient, and you have lots of different recipes for that ingredient. There is a gradation you get from traditional to your take on things, but you also then have uh, venues. And, Correct. Yeah, and and that I mean that really made my mouth water to have all this stuff. And you think it may be not even be related, but it's all out on the table, and you don't know which one you're going to grab first.
2: <laughs> but that's how I grew up as eating as a kid. You know, we would, you know, my dad would get all the ribs and everything cooked first, and then the chicken would cook, and then we laid out on the table, you know, with all the sides, and everyone just goes around and gets, you know, what what you want, and and. You, that, that's not unique only to soul food. I mean, I every, every culture does that in some some way, shape, and form. You look at a low country boil; that's what you know. That's what that is. You know, uh-huh. uh, you look at a, a, a cakewalk where you have all the desserts lined up. That's what that is. And it's really gives people a sense of time and place, and the conversations that come from them makes the world just such a better place when we're all sitting around eating delicious food. You know,
0: when you have these menus that you the one thing I'm not sure I agree with is your playlist
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you have some odd taste in music I must say
2: <laughs> well it's funny as it. out of my, my diversity in the food I, I I draw on many different uh, regions of the world to bring it back to the center of, of what I'm trying, trying to do and it's really the way the mood strikes me is how I interpret dishes just like with the okra See porridge. I mean, porridges are, you know, are, are famous, you know, around the world, but you never see one of the ochre seeds. So where do I pull that inspiration from? Uh, and having a playlist in the cookbook, though, I, I, as a chef, you never go into a restaurant that is silent. They always have some type right, of music. Right, sure. So, so I thought the cookbook would be incomplete if there wasn't, at least my interpretation of a playlist inside of it, because Good. I want to make sure people are creating their own experience. Whether they listen to it or not, that's up to them. But if they say, I don't like that song, and they pull out their own playlist, then they're creating their whole experience for, for the people that they're feeding.
0: Now, I like your your shrimp and grits with grits crust and shrimp butter. Yes. That's spectacular.
2: Huh? Yeah, that's one of my favorite uh, dishes as, as well. And again, not throwing away the shrimp shells. People disregard oh, those yeah. things, and I was like, like, what are you doing? That's where all the flavor is at. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, <laughs> I liked your
2: um, comments, including watermelon. Yeah, watermelon, you know, was one of those things from, from you know, as a kid and and, and always, you know, previous to me being born, was, was one of those caricatures that, you know, as a black chef, you shied away from because people made fun of us. For eating watermelon, but watermelon is probably one of the most life-giving fruits there is. I mean, I love it. Yeah. you know, you can use it and many. It's versatile. The skins can be pickled, um, and everything. So instead of you know, shying away from it and and that representation from the past, I really embraced it, and actually. Uh, if you look out on my back uh, deck, I probably have uh, one of the biggest watermelon uh, patches growing right now. Well, it's at the end of the season, so we're going to have to clip what's left over. But yeah, we, we you know have one back there as well.
0: Huh. Yeah, well, this watermelon salad sounds just heavenly to me with pickled rind, um, the fromage blanc, and toasted peanuts. I mean, that's great. And what could uh, be more southern than that, right?
2: Right. I mean, really. I mean. Especially with good fresh cheese, uh, you know, and I've done variations of that in the, in the restaurant with goat cheese. I've done it with I've done it with smoked cheddar, uh, with cheese curd from Wisconsin. I, I've done it with a lot of different cheeses, but the pickles really give the acidity that gives balance to the entire dish. You really
0: like pickling.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I, I try to find a way to give people, uh, you know, acid uh, without just beating them over the head to have balance on, on the dish and I hate throwing stuff away. I just can't I can't stand it. Uh, when we have opportunity to make something delicious with it, I just can't stand throwing things away.
0: You now um the um, you have crispy chitlins with hot yeah. fried rice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we where, where were with we, Star Chefs last year I think.
1: Yeah, the guy, mm-hmm.
0: the guy, the guy from, from June, Baby, you know? Oh, Walter Jordan, yeah. Yeah, God, he's yeah. good. That's what he did for his demo. Yeah. He had, uh, he had, he's a, he had a, whole
2: he's room. a good friend of mine. He, oh, had a whole,
1: he had a whole room of people learn, learning how to make chitlins.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know, it's funny. Uh, uh, people, when they think about it in the soulful vernacular, they like, chitlins, like, what is that? But then, all, but then how many people eat sausages? You know? And it's like, you know, so, like you, so you can stuff meat inside of it and, and, and boil it and put it on the grill and you, and, you, and you don't think that's foreign. But, you know, just to sort of the casing by itself is, is a little bit too foreign for you. That's the, that's the funniest thing about food and culture. You know, that we utilize the same ingredients in different ways. You think that's weird. Right. Um, you know, but, but eating the casing itself. And people will, will, will reject a hot dog or sausage if the casing is too rubbery. It has to be the snap. Uh-huh. And so pe- people are experts in the casings, and we're just serving the casings, you know, boiled or fried or however way we're going to serve
0: them. I mean, some, some of these recipes are really so out there. I wonder how you ever came across them. I mean, I'm looking at this one. Crispy plantains and chocolate-covered bacon with peanut sauce. Explain yeah.
2: how you got to that recipe. Well, you think about the tongue, the tongue region is uh, salt, sour, uh, bitter, and sweet. So that covers all those things. You know, the saltiness of the peanuts. Uh, the chocolate can be bitter and sweet at the same time. The bacon can be sweet and, and bitter at the same time. And the plantains, when they're green, they have this acidity uh, that grows. When you keep biting it's like, wow, this is really gets a little bit sour. Uh, from there, so I wanted to present a dessert that that covers the entire uh, tongue, that speaks back to uh, the Caribbean, but utilizing some American ingredients or American fodder to go along with it.
0: So you you think in terms of um, an ethnic composition for these things?
2: I, I do. I think it's not only the region in which it comes from. Uh, how to make it relevant to the time period in which we are in, and also what playfulness that goes along with it. Um, saying that if I never had plantains before, but I like chocolate, everyone, you know, mostly everyone loves bacon, and having peanuts as that crunch or another part of the texture. I think about the entire senses of the people, and not just uh, just one aspect of what I'm trying to accomplish on 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 the plate.
0: You know, you're a really complicated guy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I may throw that a time or two. You know?
0: Yeah, well, it's true. And, and I, I think you said that when you decided to become a chef was when you went to one of your neighborhood Chinese places.
1: Yeah,
2: I, I mean, that was special. Um, my mom had this love for Chinese food, especially when she was pregnant uh, with my younger sister. It was that and, and tacos. And fortunately for us, they were on the same street. Uh, and my dad and his food would never allow us to order a takeout without uh, taking something that was left over and putting it on the table as well. So you look at the collard green ramen. Uh, My mom had this dish that was jacqueline. Oh, tell us about
0: that. Tell me. I I know about it because I read about it, but tell our listeners about that. That is just incredible.
2: So my uh, mom had this loaf of jacqueline. It was noodles with broth, sliced pork belly, egg, and scallions. And my dad would heat collard greens and put them on the table at the same time. So you think about it from the standpoint, you know, you have two pork-based broths. One is smoked, one is not. But when you put the greens on top of the noodles and you eat it all together, that's like the formulation of a ramen dish. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the dishes that's been on any menu uh, that I've had in some iteration, whether it's collard green or collard green ramen or a, a collard green bowl. That I'm doing uh, at Chicken and Beer with a uh, piece of fried chicken on it. Like it's always been that iteration that came from me. as five six year old slippery noodles with collard greens uh, and soft boiled egg. When I was you know four or five years old.
0: Well, I mean, as I said, you're a complicated guy. One of the things you tend to do is you take um, things that we think are sweet, such as peaches, and treat them as savories. Yeah,
2: <laughs> peaches are, are, are very peach complicated. Peach salad. Tell yeah. us about that one, the peach salad. Well, peaches are very complicated uh, as, as, as well. You know, underripe peach, uh, it can be, you know, bitter and sour, and a sweet peach can be, you know, really sweet. And I tried to find them in, in between so you can be playful with it, that you can pull Different parts of the peach—you can pull, you know, the the parts near the seed a little bit are a little bit more bitter. So you can you can accentuate that with something sour. Uh, The sweet part you can tame down with a little bit of salt. So it's all about balance. And 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 I have a formula in the uh, uh, for recipes in the restaurant that if we do three of the regions of the tongue uh, on a plate, we will satisfy most people. If we do four regions, we can satisfy everyone because everyone can taste, you know, two to three regions uh, at one period of time. So those that same kind of philosophy is what I was trying to accomplish in the cookbook as well.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's you, listeners, you just have to get this book and leaf through it, and try some of these. I mean, you go everywhere. Here you're doing sea urchin with smoked tomato broth and West African spices.
2: I mean, <laughs> right. well, you know, sea urchin is one of the is a very fascinating uh, creatures that lives in the sea. But what most people don't know is that on the coast of, of West Africa, especially around Sierra Leone, that, that sea urchin is a common thing. Where they would just go out into the water and, and just pluck them out of the water, put them on the on the grill. Uh, well, cut them open, put them on the grill, add tomato and spices. And, and and really cook them, in, uh, you know, just in the open flame. And and, and to me, that is you know as big a bigger part of soul food cooking as anything else. Where you're just going to get one natural ingredient, you're not doing anything to it. Adding your spices and things to it, but that's it. I mean, that is such a beautiful dish. And Charleston actually does uh, around that area. They do have good sea urchins during the spring. Uh
0: huh. Well, I think. Um I'm happy to to know that you could fry, uh, tomatillos like you do green tomatoes because we have a couple of vines and boy do they produce. <laughs>
2: uh, they do. Uh, we um we planted uh, at the house. We planted uh, Cape gooseberries and tomatillos this year, and they both are you know that they have that kind of skin on the, on the outside of them, and just seeing the way that they flourish and 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 they 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 really we just uh, literally pulled. You know, pull them out of the ground yesterday because they're done, done producing, and it's just wonderful to see that. But the versatility of them is what I love the most about tomatoes.
1: Now, what what you call cape gooseberries, they're what we call ground cherries. Yeah, what we call Grand well, ground cherries.
2: Yeah, yeah, they they're 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 the exact same thing. And um, it's really great to plant them in the garden because as you're out there working, you have this natural exactly. snack. That just, <laughs> 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 you know, you know, you just you get a little hungry, so you just pick them up and and, and keep keep going. But our yeah.
0: mm-hmm. our rabbits didn't uh, seem to like them; they, they'd spare us eating the ground cherries. I guess they were gone by then.
2: Well, uh, uh, well, you're you're not uh, a lot nicer to the rabbits uh, than I am because if a couple of rabbits come over here; they're going to be they're uh, conv- going to be dinner,
0: and, uh, right? That's like your chicken judge.
1: Do, do, do you like squirrels? <laughs> we, have a, uh, we have a lot of we have a lot of them too.
2: Oh, well, around here though, uh, in Atlanta, the area where we live, the squirrels are, are teeny tiny, so there's not much meat on them. So, uh,
0: right, okay. Well, yeah, I was once asked when I was um, a restaurant critic for uh, city magazine to judge a roadkill. Uh, contest. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious. They made up all these rules, you know, <laughs> about, yeah. about how, how they were running over all kinds of things. Oh, okay. <laughs> we well, okay, again, Todd Richards, I, I really enjoyed talking to you and, and reading your book, and uh, hopefully we'll touch base at one of these conferences or in Atlanta or whatever. Um, Again, listeners, Todd Richards, uh, Soul, A Chef's Culinary Evolution in 150 Recipes. And you also get the idea of what champagne goes with, because you like champagne.
2: And uh, you'll be curious about the playlist. (laughs) Goes
1: with with collard greens, right? Goes
2: with with uh, greens. You know, I I, I start every morning with a glass of champagne because it gets no better than that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, <laughs> that's good.
0: Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Todd.
2: All right, thank you.
4: Bye, bye. Bye.
0: Next up for our fondle section, we're segment. We're going to switch you to a product instead of a book. Talking to Kim Kassar of Keiko. Um, uh, Kim is a wonderful spokesperson, and the company is interesting. They do development. They do research. They do importing. They do all of this with specialty products, and they're kosher. Um, this particular segment of the company we're going to talk about is Tuscanini Foods. So listen to Kim tell us about how they go about uh, sourcing the, the, the products. Kim Kassar, you're becoming something of a regular on On the Menu Radio. I believe that the last time we talked, we were discussing beet juice, <laughs> which we loved. Uh, anyhow, you're with a different brand today, but your your home base is Keiko, which uh, manages about 100 brands. And this one is
4: Tuscanini Foods. Is that what we're talking about? That is what we're talking about, and, and first and foremost, thank you so much for having me back. I had so much fun last time that I had to come back, and this time, we're going to talk about one of my favorite brands, close to my heart, um, Tuscanini Foods, imported directly from Italy. Now, I asked you, what distinguishes, because there are,
0: as you know, there are hundreds and hundreds, of, if not thousands, of uh, lines of Italian food entering this country, and what distinguishes Tuscanini foods from all of them? Well,
4: we think that Tuscanini stands apart um, on a few different attributes, if you will. Um, first, we take a lot of time and consideration in developing each individual product. Um, we use natural ingredients. We go all over Italy to find the right region where they have make the most perfect ingredients, and then we create a recipe around that. But to layer on top of that, um, I think one of the distinguishing factors is that every one of our Tuscanini products is kosher. So we've got a great option for the kosher market.
0: Yes, now, indeed.
1: Now, uh, now let, let, me, let me get this clear. The, the, pro- the products are actually made in Italy, and then you import them. Is that how it works?
4: That is how it works. We get them from the
1: source. Okay, so and that source is where it could be all over the place.
4: It is actually we get some products from Parma, some from uh, Tuscany, some from Sardinia, um, a few items come from Sicily, so all over Italy, uh, depending on what that area is really good at, that's where we go to um, get those particular ingredients.
1: How about a few examples of of ones you you think are really spectacular and and what they are and where they come from
4: sure um. It's hard to pick your favorites because there are so many amazing items from Tuscanini, but I will say one of my staple go-tos is definitely our Toscanini, um pasta sauces. We have five different pasta sauces, um, four of which come in a jar ready to go. We've got a regular marinara sauce. We've got a zesty marinara sauce, which might just be my favorite. Um, we also have a pizza sauce. Those all come from the Parma region of Italy. And our point of difference, if you will, what makes this different is each individual bottle contains 40 tomatoes. So we know that 40 full tomatoes goes in each um, bottle of Tuscanini, which gives it an extraordinary taste and texture. It's not overly sweet. It's not overly spicy. And quite frankly, a few times I've served it to my family, and I might have told them that it was homemade. But it wasn't. <laughs> it was actually Tuscanini. So just don't tell them. I hope they're not listening. You know, I, I did
1: this
0: once uh, with a buffet with
1: hold coleslaw. On, hold on a minute. Let, let's go on a little bit. See, everybody in the past, up until now, in my memory, has bragged about the fact that they use tomatoes from Sicily called San Marzano. hmm Now, which to, are these different tomatoes that you use in your sauce? They are different tomatoes because they are coming from a different region. And And
4: the thing with our tomatoes is they are, obviously, they're picked fresh. They take the flavor from the region around them. They're juicy. They're absolutely delicious and like I said they're sweet but not too sweet Um, and my gauge is always so so my uh, father's family is from the Naples area of of Italy and and so I always try to serve him my Tuscanini products and and see if he notices and and see what he comments on it and I do have to say the sauces have won his his love and admiration so I'm very pleased with that do you think he thinks you made them (laughs) I do admit to the fact that I didn't make them afterwards <laughs> I let him believe it for a few minutes, now, do you get to travel to all these places in Italy? Unfortunately, I personally don't. But my um, head of R and D and head chef um, of Tuscanini Products, if you will, he goes um, and and you know it's very hard to take the trip to Italy. We're all very very jealous. Mm-hmm. And he goes and he visits the farms where they make the, where they grow the tomatoes, and he watches the processes they make the pastas um, with 100% durum wheat, and he watches it come up on. He sends us videos, which is very nice. But I would much rather be there standing. Next oh, yeah. to see it first <laughs> <is>. but <laughs> we do watch the process very very closely and and that's how we found so many great products
0: you know we we tasted the uh, pastas and I mean all the great pastas uh, are made in these uh, brass uh, extruders yes yes yeah. they are all yeah, a bronze, bronze, cut. bronze bronze I'm bronze. sorry I'm mm-hmm. not said brass I meant bronze extruders mm-hmm. formed because then they're little little yeah. Rises that yeah, captured the sauce.
4: We, we right, to- which I, I never knew before we, we launched this product. I had no idea that the actual cut of the pasta could affect the way the sauce um, is absorbed and, of course, how it tastes when, when you eat it.
1: Well, they, they say that we, like Kraft and all these other people who make uh, cheap store bought uh, pasta, they use plastic dyes, and the plastic dyes right. create a pasta that's smooth. Right. So, the, so the sauce just runs off. Now, we, we right. actually we actually had the opportunity for a for a full day visit to a pasta maker in Abruzzo called Rusticella. Oh, yeah, that was fun. And, and we got we got a complete rundown on on why why bronze dyes were better. Yeah, yeah we did. The other kinds of dyes. It,
4: it's fascinating. I, I had no idea, and that's that's what we brought to the uh, to the U.S. table was we wanted to create a pasta that. First of all, we make delicious sauce. We don't want it to run off your pasta. We want it to stay with the pasta so that when you, when you eat your pasta, you can taste that sauce. So, uh, yeah, we, we made sure to get the very best um, quality ingredients and, and the right production, if you will, to uh, deliver the best product.
1: Now, what, yeah. about, what about one that comes from Sicily, a product that come, which is in Ancestry? Ah,
4: okay. Well, Sicily, we make um, a product which is a little bit more, I'll, I'll call it humble and, and pretty basic, but it's our sea salt. We have this beautiful oh, for, Mediterranean. For me. for, for, yeah, I have a whole, a whole thing
0: of it. Yeah.
4: And it, it just brings flavor to your life, for sure. We've got a coarse version and a fine version, but, you know, where would you go to get better sea salt than Sicily? It's, it's just, yeah, you know, again, it's, it takes from every West place. Coast, yeah, West
0: Coast. Yeah. Yeah, the,
1: the the challenge we found and we ruined several salt salt mills, mills. In the process <laughs> is, is uh, that the, the that that salt actually is quite wet ah uh, yes yes so so you so you need a
0: you know, somebody makes one we yeah. have have we well,
1: tested it? so you you need you need a salt mill Mm-hmm. Which will put up with the fact that it's going to have a, a slightly damp texture ins- to it. Stuff inside, no, just yeah. inside of it. So, so if you're not careful, they rust.
4: Ah, uh, yes, yes. No. Well, we we have it all ready to go. So it's a nice coarse chop, so you don't even need a grinder, and you can just put it right onto any dish that you're cooking.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. Got it.
4: Yeah. Wow. So we've made it easy, and they come in these beautiful packages, which you'd be pleased to have on your counter.
1: Okay. Well, anyway, you, can take, you can take care of that one. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, how, do, how do people get to know more, more about the products that you have? And, and where can they buy them?
4: Sure. Uh, you can visit us at Tuscanini.com or uh, look us up on Instagram or Tuscanini Foods. Um, but the beautiful thing about where to find us, we are in every kosher store across the country that you can find. So um, if you're looking for kosher food specifically, we're there. But we also have a lot of our items on Amazon. So if you can't find it in your local store, you go to Amazon and as you know, it'll be at your door a few days later.
0: Right. Um, yeah. Now, where does the family-owned business come in here? Is that so, Keiko or is it Tuscanini? It's
4: Keiko. So, so Keiko is um, a family-owned business. We are the single largest manufacturer and distributor of kosher foods in the United States. And um, as as I was talking earlier with you, we develop our own brands. So we have brands like Tuscanini and Butology. We have a brand called. Absolutely gluten-free, which is a divine um, line of crackers and flatbreads and snacks, which we should talk about maybe next time. Um, We're launching a new tahini bar under a Mighty Sesame brand. Oh, that's wonderful. I love those. those Oh, they
0: are wonderful. I've had those, yeah. Oh, well, I'll have to send you some more. They are my favorite oh, treat duns- with a duns- cup of coffee. Yeah, I, I mean, I eat them all. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, it's okay because they're only 100 calories per bar, so, oh, you know, wow. you just have one or two a day. Not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I can't do my
0: bottle of champagne like we did last night for Valentine's <laughs> <laughs> Well, the champagne
4: is definitely good as well. <laughs> yeah.
1: so. Well, well you, 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 get, you get a prize. I'm I'm going to award you a prize as the sound champion. Uh, Well, thank you. Of of, of On The Menu Radio. I can't wait to have you back again so I can enjoy, the I can luxuriate in the magnificent sound bars that I'm getting on the recording equipment.
4: (laughs) Well, that is the most unique compliment I think I've ever gotten in my life. Thank you so much. (laughs)
0: Well, Kim, I'm sure we'll, we'll be having you on again. And so thank you for talking to us about Tuscanini Foods and Keiko.
4: Oh, my absolute pleasure! I can't wait till the next time, and um, as always, it's great fun talking with you both. So you too. I look forward to the next. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Take care.
1: Okay, so that's a wrap for this week's program. We hope you'll join us again, same time, same place next week. And until then, bye bye. <laughs>